We have rejected the horrible and blasphemous doctrine of predestination, whereby God is supposed to have consigned the greater part of mankind to eternal damnation without any consideration of whether they have been disobedient or sinned. This is supposed to have been done so that his justice may lay hold of them. Yet it is claimed that he has withheld all grace from them by which they could obtain salvation. From Robert Barclay's Apology, his fifth and sixth propositions. This is the Ohio Yearly Meeting Conservative Reading Presentation and Study of William Schuin's 1675 work entitled The True Christian's Faith and Experience. These sessions are intended for conservative friends, Wilburite friends, but they're open to other interested parties as well. This is session number 16, and we are on chapter 11. As usual, I will read the text, translating it into modern English as best I can, and then amplifying and commenting on it as we go along. As so frequently in Schuin's work here, almost every line is direct paraphrase or quotation from the Bible. It may not be that apparent immediately. Sometimes he will have a direct quotation, but so many other times they're just there. And you may see many of those phrases and lines directly from the Bible. This chapter 11 is a chapter on predestination, the doctrine, the teaching about predestination, which became very prominent with Calvin and followers in churches that followed Calvin. This chapter is not easy. Actually, it's a very long chapter. I'm assuming it will take probably two, maybe even a third session to go through. But it is important to understand this because of those churches, even today, Christian denominations that really are descendants of that kind of thinking. It's important, I think, as Wilburites to be aware of this kind of thinking out there, among others. I'm going to read something again because I think it's important to understand what's being said here about the seed and how important this word was in early and traditional Quaker thinking and understanding. As I read last week, I'm going to read that same passage from Mark about the sower of the seed. This is found also in Matthew chapter 13 and also in Luke. But I'm going to read Mark, beginning with verse 1. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. Such a very large crowd gathered around him that he got into a boat on the sea and sat there, while the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. He began to teach them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and it sprang up quickly since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Other seed fell into good soil and brought forth grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirty and sixty and a hundredfold. And he said, Let anyone with ears to hear, listen. When he was alone, those who were around him, along with the twelve, asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything comes in parables, 
in order that they may indeed look, but not perceive, and may indeed listen, but not understand, so that they may not turn again and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? Then how will you understand all the parables? The sower sows this word. These are the ones on the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy. But they have no root and endure only for a while. Then when trouble or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are those sown among the thorns. These are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the lure of wealth and the desire for other things come in and choke the word, and it yields nothing. And these are the ones sown on good soil. They hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirty and sixty and a hundredfold. The word of God, God expressing himself, God as an utterance within us, is what is seen here as a seed. This word seed, it's important to understand it in a broader sense, the seed of God. The word seed in the original Greek of the New Testament meant both seed and semen. They made no distinction between whether it was a plant or if it was an animal. And of course, we're talking here about the seed of God. So whatever word we use here, we need to understand it in that sense. But there's also another sense of seed, and that word seed also means progeny or offspring of someone. It's the result of what has happened with that seed in terms of its growth or the progeny, the descendants, and that too is important here. Now, the seed of the woman, the woman may be understood as some commentators talk about it as the church, all right? Whereas the seed of the serpent is the seed of Satan, the seed of the devil. You have these two seeds. And this whole chapter is, as the title says here, the true Christian's faith and experience concerning the doctrine, the teaching of election and reprobation. We will get into these words as we go along here. Basically, we're talking about predestination and that problem, that particular false teaching of predestination that some are predestined to go to heaven or to go to hell, is how you would understand it in Calvinist kind of thinking. Any comments so far? The reference in Luke is Luke 8, 4 to 15. Yes, 8, that's right. Thanks. Another significant issue with election is that Calvin believed that if you were among those who were chosen by God, there was no way you could ever lose that salvation. You could never step away from it. It yes. was eternal. People today in some denominations talk about once saved, always saved. Already it's predetermined which way you're going. Well, Schuin's going to understand this from a Quaker perspective and really show how wrong this particular doctrine, this teaching is. I should also mention, as I think I said last week, this kind of understanding of predestination was completely unknown in early Christianity. You do not find it in any Christian works of the, of the first 300 years or so before Constantine. And even after, I can say right now, the Catholic Church rejected this teaching as heretical also. But it has been a real problem for so many people since Calvin in their individual churches. 
there's also another problem here that I don't want to get into because it will cause us to spend so much time on language and translation that I don't want to get lost there because I myself find it difficult how to understand some of these words. Even here where it says election, I wonder if it might be better to translate that word as selection or choice, choosing. And then reprobation, of course, is like in the more modern sense, condemnation. So I think we'll begin here. Election and reprobation. Election is positive, reprobation negative. Stands in the two seeds called the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And all mankind are partakers of the one or of the other. As either of these two seeds grows up into something beyond being a seed. And as they grow up in the one or in the other, or as a person joins to the one or to the other, and are born of the one, which is incorruptible, eternal, or of the other, which is corruptible, decay is the understanding there, decaying. And this seed, which is incorruptible and has remained pure throughout all generations, is that in which all nations are blessed as they come to be born of it. Again, thinking of this seed in us, if we are the soil and we have this seed of God in us, if we remain pure, we end up as that positive type of seed growth as to 30, 60, 100 fold. So I'm guessing that this is a spiritual birth and Absolutely. not the physical one. Oh, yeah. We're not talking about anything physical here. Okay. That confused me the first time I read it. No, no. This is all spiritual birth, spiritual seed. And this is it. And it is this to which all the promises of God in the Old Testament are yes and amen, which were not made to seeds, plural, as of many seeds, as Paul says, speaking of the seed of Abraham but of one seed, which is Christ's, that particular progeny offspring. And they that are Christ's are Abraham's seed and heirs by promise, through promise. If they see themselves and become the kind of soil they need to be for that seed to really grow. And the election, that's the selection or choice, is another word for election, of God. Stand and think of a choice wine, choice type of food, okay? That's how we should understand, I think, election or selection. Stands in this seed, continues in this seed. And all the heavenly blessings and evangelical, that is the gospel promises, come to be enjoyed and inherited, obtained by mankind through faith, through trust in this seed through the growing up of this seed in them, the spiritual seed, and through the knowing this seed to remain in them. And this seed can become the greatest of all seeds, stopping the growth of the seed of the serpent in them, bruising his head and causing his whole body to languish and die. And through knowing, this seed becomes so powerful in them as to possess the gates of his enemies, to control and stop those enemies at the gate. Just want to stop here. Again, we're talking about the growth of this seed. If you recall the parable comparison about the sower of the seed, God is the sower and the seed is his word, as it's explained by Jesus, the word of God. That word of God is the Messiah, is the word of God, is God speaking inside us. It's one perhaps of many seeds, but that's the one that needs to be followed.
I'm a little confused. At first, I thought that he was starting to describe the Calvinist view because he's talking about two different seeds. He's but, talking about two. Right. The Calvinists would say something to the effect that you have one or the other in you, either the seed of the woman or the seed of the serpent, and that's what you're stuck with. So he's talking about, this is the friend's view. This is the Quaker view that's describing here. Schoen's talking about the two seeds, but the seed that matters is the one that he's here, the choices of election. That's the one that we need to pay attention to. These reminding me of another parable of Jesus, where a, a, a farmer has a, a field and he's sown seed there. But an enemy comes at night and sows weeds among seeds that were planted by the uh, farmer. So that parable perhaps can be understood in two ways as to different people, but also I think within oneself. But I don't want to go in that direction. But the seed is kind of an important understanding because Jesus says the seed can be very small, but it can grow up. It's important to cling, to cleave to that seed that we understand to be the right seed. That's the seed that needs to grow in us. That's the semen, the what has been planted there. Am I understanding this right, that what he's saying is that every person has both types of seeds in them? That's what he seems to be saying in the first sentence. Potentially, yes. That's my understanding, too, potentially. You just don't start off as the, being the person that has only this positive seed in you. And then we're capable of partaking in one or the other. That's where the choice comes in, which of those two we partake in. Yes, and that's the choice seed, the right seed, the seed of truth, the seed of God, the word of God. And if we grow up in the good seed, that further down in the paragraph, that stops the growth of the seed of the serpent. Essentially, if you're obeying and listening to that seed, that word of God in you. Jesus is giving this parable, but he's talking about the eternal Christ, the eternal Messiah, that Messiahship, that divine side of him, which is in us as a seed as well. So that if we are following this, we too can become co-heirs with Christ. So this is an important kind of understanding. The reason I'm trying to really sort of pin this down is because of a sort of a Calvinist view of this and evangelical view of this, because it seems like what they would say is you start out with one or the other, one seed or the other. God is preordained, predestined, which seed you have. And here each person has both types in them and they can partake in one or the other. Maybe today or next week, we will get on to more what he says about some of the understanding that's incorrect. I think that's what you're referring to. If you have a plant and you're paying attention to it and watering it, uh, seeing to its needs, it grows well. But if you forget about it and don't water it and feed it, then it dies. And I think that's the same with the seed that's within you. The two seeds, it's whichever you pay attention to and care for. Yes, that reminds me of another parable of Jesus about the fig tree, or a man planted a tree, fig tree, and the hired hand or the slave wanted to cut it down after a year or so because it wasn't having any fruit. But the owner said, let it grow and let's see what happens. He's giving it a chance to eventually have fruit. If not, it then will be torn down. I'm thinking there, It's we're talking about the compassion of the Lord, you know, God's mercy. Um, we're not going to just cut this down because it's not doing what it should be doing right now. 
there's a chance for repentance, a chance for change. And Paul would might say, those who are under the law of the spirit do not produce the fruit of the flesh. So there's another two different seeds, right? Those who are under the spirit are the law of the spirit, shall we say, are not under the law of sin and death. I'm kind of thinking that understanding is something later than what this initial phase or whatever we're talking about here in terms of the seed growing. The law of the spirit supplants the law of Moses in terms of a, being a greater law more encompassing. It's not something that's just confined to 613 rules and regulations, but our understanding of following this spiritual law of what is right and what is wrong. All right, let's continue here. With this seed and with all that are born of it, God's election stands sure, is certain, and his covenant is kept with it forever. So if the person is following this seed and not some other seed, then it's forever. Whom he loves here, God loves to the end. And all that love this seed, he will be their God, and they shall be his people. And those are the elect, the, the selected ones, the choice ones, who can never be deceived or have the gates of hell prevail against them. It's not something predetermined. We have a part in this in terms of the freedom, the free will we've been given to follow or not follow that seed, to obey that seed. It's not determined ahead of time by God. And the true Christian who is born of this incorruptible seed obeys Peter's exhortation, giving diligence to make his calling and election sure, his selection certain, adding to his faith virtue and to virtue knowledge into knowledge, temperance, into temperance, patience, into patience, godliness, into godliness, brotherly kindness, into brotherly kindness, charity, love, etc. Oh, that Christendom would obey this. So that in terms of our individual, our individual following what the seed is telling us and our obeying what we hear in this word of God within us, that's where there's an increase again and again. If you think of, again, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, one grace will be given after another grace. And again, this sounds like the fruit of the Spirit list. Yes. And, and so it's God's knowledge, God's temperance, God's patience that we inherit from the seed. If we are obedient. Yep. I guess he says, oh, that Christendom would obey this. Oh, you know, his wishes that Christianity would obey this. Sometimes the confusion is that we are to add our own and produce our own righteousness oh. instead of receiving it from the seed. The seed has it all. If you recall in the story of the, the seed that there are all these other reasons why people fall away, the cares of the world or, or you name it. Initially, people who discover this seed within them, they might feel wonderful. Aha, I finally learned or I'm aware of something here. But they've got to be diligent. It's not something that's just going to be there and you can forget about. And as he does these things, the, the true Christian will never fall, but rather have an entrance ministered abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he lays aside all malice and all guile, deceit, and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, speaking evil. And he becomes like a newborn babe, 
desiring the sincere milk of the word, that he may grow more and more and increase with the increase of God through that, until he grows up in the promised seed in which his calling and election stand, to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, a completely developed man, human being, right up to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, becoming like Christ in some measure fully, growing up in him in all things who is the head, specifically Christ, the anointed, the Messiah, a newborn babe. This is the semen becoming a baby, desiring the sincere milk of the word. We would capitalize that word as word with a capital today. So that is the word of God, desiring the milk from the word of God feeding on that milk. In the Odes of Solomon, it talks about the Holy Spirit being milk for Christians, so that the Christian may grow more and more in increase of God through that, until he grows up in the promised seed in which his calling and election stand. Whenever you see this word calling or call, it's the same root in that word in the New Testament as is the word for church, not the church building, but for those who are called out of the world. So it's always important when you see this word call or calling or called to think, is this related to being called out of worldly ways of doing things, worldly ways of acting, of thinking? And that is the true church in which his calling and election, his selection stand. Why? The unity of the faith. My understanding is that we're talking here that this faith, this trust in God is the same in all who think this way. So it's not just one person. That is that calling, that church. And of the knowledge, of the experience, experiencing the Son of God, this Word of God within us, up to becoming a complete human being, a perfect man, a fully developed spiritual human being up to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We're talking about becoming, in some measure, in some degree, going right up to that full stature of Christ, becoming like Christ, like the Messiah, Jesus, growing up in him in all things, he who is the head, specifically Christ. This is the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. We are called out of the world to look at this mark as being the goal of what we should become, what we should be are. In other words, becoming holy, sanctified, justified, sanctified, becoming holy, being made holy by our actions in alignment with God and made upright, righteous. And these are the marks, tokens, and signs, fruits, and effect which attend and accompany all those who are born of this incorruptible seed, in which their election stands, their selection, their choice stands, in, through, and by which their calling and election are made sure. This understood, this is not easy material to read. And the true Christian who is thus elected or selected or chosen and born of this seed, he is participating through obedience by being born of this seed. That seed in him is the one that is being given birth to. And that's the one he's joined to. Has not only the witness, the witness of God in himself, in the spirit of God bearing that witness, 
and sealing to his spirit that he is a child of that seed. But the fruit of this seed also shows itself forth, displays itself, and appears that men may see and behold it, look at it, and glorify his Father who is in heaven. It will be apparent in our fruits that our actions and what we do out in public, people can see that, and they will glorify God who is in heaven by seeing that behavior in us. How is it that we have a witness in ourself? That is the witness of God. That is God being the witness. God is the witness in us. We're talking about the sea, but we're also talking about the witness of God there. So there's something within us that tells us these things, that acts as a witness to us. If we are in conformity with what we are understanding from the seed, from this word of God, from this witness, then we understand that we really are in alignment, that we are chosen that we are elected, if you want to say, or selected. I want to also say that it's quite possible to fool ourselves, too. I think he will talk about that later on. Friends spoke of the witness in them early before they were completely obedient. And that witness was showing them what they should be doing. They didn't always listen or obey. But they remembered later that that witness, they had disobeyed. God works in us by that witness. So that would be like the spirit of Christ illuminating what we should be doing and what our problems are and how we should change. Yeah, yeah that's him teaching us the witness, inward witness. Thank you. I think also it is the fruit of God that we see within ourselves. As we abide in him, as we gaze upon him, we are transformed by him. And the fruit of the spirit, the infinite fruit of the spirit is produced within us. So that is a witness as well. Religious always ask me, how do you know that it's God speaking to you? And I said, because the fruit is born that is infinitely pure, infinitely loving, infinitely kind, infinitely patient. And I know that's not the fruit that I would produce from my own flesh ego strength. It's completely the opposite. And it's infinite in nature and purity. An opposite angle, I know when, say, I am saying something or doing something or have known when I've said something or did something and realized, no, that wasn't right. What is that witness in me telling me that? If I just were following my own ego, I wouldn't think that way, I don't think. Something else is telling me, oh, I need to look at that again. And Paul even talks about times where we are condemning ourselves, but that's not of God either. Yes, that's in First John. So God is greater than our own wisdom, our own strengths, and our own governance. And it's quite like the fruit of the spirit versus the fruit of the flesh are quite opposite. It should be fairly easy to determine, especially if you are in the light and trying to follow the light. If it's about building up your own ego, it's probably not the spirit. But if it's about serving other people and loving other people, it's not necessarily a 100% guarantee that that's of the light, but it's a pretty good indication. You have this ancient, that goes back to ancient times, list of deadly sins. Seven deadly sins or whatever the list may go. This goes back hundreds of years. And at the top of all of them is what's called the sin of pride or I would translate it as egotistical arrogance. My ego comes first. 
It's what I want. I want to be in control. I know what's right. I want this. It's all these desires, or to use the older word, lusts, but we're talking about all these egotistical cravings that just have to be put in their place because we need to think like Christ thought, think his thoughts. We need to discern what is the will of God. We can follow our own will all the time, but is that will in alignment with God? We need to keep on asking that question. Okay, the next paragraph is a long paragraph, and at some point I remember there's a typographical error, I think, here. They leave out a line or so. Let's see where that comes. And here we are looking at the reprobation. Now the reprobation, the condemnation, stands in the seed of the serpent. The serpent, again, in Genesis, the Satan, devil, evil spirits, and all that are born of it, everyone that is born of it, are born of flesh and blood, and of the will of man, not of the will of God, nor by promises, the promise of, in the Old Testament. And in whomsoever this seed grows up, enmity increases in them against the seed of the woman, the positive seed, seed of God against the promised seed and all the children of it. Hence arose Cain's envy, Ishmael's mocking, and Esau's rage, and are continued in that generation of birth down to this age. This is that birth that is born according to the flesh, materialism, the physical world, which always did and does to this day persecute him who is born according to the spirit, the spiritual seed. This is he who was grown into a great dragon in John's day, which persecuted the woman that brought forth a seed, a man-child. This is a reference to the book of Revelation, understanding the man-child as being Jesus, and that went to make war with the remnant of her seed who kept commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. And he, Satan, is the same at this day, and his wrath, enmity, and work are the same in the hearts and hands of all mankind, in whom this seed of the old serpent has taken root and grows up. This is the seed of the wicked who shall be cut off, and of evildoers who shall never be renowned, being found renowned. And all who are joined to it and become children of it are reprobate to every good word and work, action and go upon their bellies, again, thinking of snakes, and dust is their food, and they dwell upon the earth where there is woe, and where the devil has come down among them. And they walk upon that ground that is cursed, and inhabit the dark corners of it. And they hate the light, and are reprobate away from the presence of God, and from the glory of his power. They are children of disobedience and wrath, in whom the old serpent, against Satan, evil spirits rule, and holds them in sore captivity. Just a reminder here, too, that, again, friends were being severely persecuted by other Christians and by the government in England at this time. Yeah, I like the line where they says um, they hate the light. And so that's another sign to ourselves, whether we are in the light or not, is that we want more of the light. We're open to the light. Patricia Dahlman says, says it this way, we want God to judge us so that we can remove any darkness from us. Yes, friends have said that in their writings. But if you are afraid to experience God, then that's a sign that maybe you are not walking in the path. You're not abiding in the true vine. 
one of the first offices of Christ Jesus in us is that of being light or enlightenment. And light shows up all the dark spots within us, all the darkness, all the, those parts that we may not want to look at, but need to be changed in us. These verses are mostly from the book of Revelation and elsewhere too. But I know among liberal friends, it's so strange to so many of them. If you begin to talk about this first initial function or understanding of Christ in us is to show us what's wrong with us. You have to know who you really are, your dark side, your, uh, as um, even modern psychologists would talk about it, you know, your the shadow side of yourself. How do you change something if you don't even know it needs to be changed there? There's something there that must be changed. I think the inclination of the flesh and of religion is to try and hide it from God instead of bring it to God for his redemption. And so we might fall into that way of walking where we present to God this goody two-shoes version of ourselves that's not real. It's a mask. It's a role we're playing. And it's like, no, bring the most unredeemed part of you to God for his redemption. This is a scary thing, I think, for many people. Or even, I'm just thinking even myself at times, you know, do I really want to look at some of these negative parts of me? I mean, as I have, have looked at times uh, in my life, and it's not a, a state that we want to be in, or at least not to remain in. And of course, if we are obedient and following the light within, we will be moved out of that initial state of looking at ourselves, having light shone on all the parts of ourselves that we aren't aware of or don't want to look at. And I appreciate the light's response, Jesus' response, as he's not there to critique us when we bring things to him. He's not there to chastise us. It's when we're running away that he has to do such actions. Uh, but when we're running towards him, it's a completely different reaction. He's not there to scold us or any of that, right? He's there to help. He's there to redeem. He's there to lift us over the darkness. Okay. Even our own inner darkness. Right. And as in this state of reprobation, they abide. They are children of the devil and his lust, his desires. They do. They perform. They are his servants and slaves. And they cannot cease from sin, from sinning, or enjoy the many glorious promises made to the seed of the woman. Or no, the serpent's head, Satan's head in them, bruised through it. Or the great red dragon chained, again, the red dragon in the book of Revelation, since being reprobate from that faith, which gives victory over him, over the serpent. But out of this state of reprobation and deep pit of misery, in which a great part of mankind is held, but then note the footnote. There is a possibility that the reprobate may become elect. He's actually saying to a Calvinist, the person that you say, you're saying is condemned, he may become selected, elect. The testimony of the true Christian is that God has appointed a means of deliverance, salvation, and redemption. That God has given us human beings a way of coming out of that state of being condemned. There is a possibility of being born again of the other seed in which the election stands. Children of disobedience and wrath may become children of God and partake of his grace and mercy, his grace and compassion, and witness redemption, liberation from the earth, from what is physical, material, worldliness. 
and the cursed ground with its cursed fruit burned up through the spirit of judgment and burning. Again, the judgment, the burning of what is not of God. And the seed of the serpent may be rooted out of the heart of man, out of the conscience, the consciousness of man, the mind of man, though it has grown there long for a long time and filled that heart with its fruit. And the good seed of the kingdom of God may spring up and grow there. And every thorn, briar, thistle, and plant which hindered its growth, the growth of the kingdom of God, may be pulled up which those plants which the heavenly father has not planted and those that have yielded their members servants to unrighteousness may yield them servants to righteousness and those that are foolish may become wise those that are disobedient and deceived may become obedient and undeceived those that serve diverse various cravings and pleasures, and live in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another, they may come to witness victory. So going back to the parable that you read at the beginning, Shuan is saying that these thorns and things that would choke out the good seed can be overcome. These various conditions that Jesus was talking about where the seed fell, it is not something that is without choice. Yes, it's not that things are frozen stone. There's always this possibility. God's grace is always there for everyone, everywhere, at all times. If you recall what we were reading about the universality of God's love in the, in the last chapter we read last week, God doesn't condemn people forever. This is where the text drops a few words. Yes, I'm looking for it. It may come to witness victory. Over. Oh, there it is. Yes. May, okay. And may come to witness. I'll read it from my text in front of me here in the book. May come to witness victory over and redemption, liberation from all these things. And then this true Christian's testimony is plentifully borne witness to in the Holy Scriptures. Again, this is the Quaker understanding of these words and this understanding that they are just totally opposed, not just chewing, to this doctrine, this teaching about people are being predestined one way or the other. One of the reasons why I think predestination even began to be thought of was that God is understood to be all-knowing. You know, that he knows everything, past, present, and future. And somehow there was a distortion in terms of understanding that. And I often will look at uh, saying God is all-knowing as God is all-knowledge, as I think I mentioned last week. That's different. I mean, because if God's all-knowing, then he already knows where you're going and what's going to happen to you. You're asking the wrong kind of question there because God is infinite. He's not made out of material. He's not temporal or physical. Time and space are creatures of God. God created them. He is outside of his own creation, but he's also inside the creation, although he is not the creation. It's just sad that this kind of understanding really has confused so many people for the last several hundred years, and even today. I think we will finish this chapter next week. The Quaker understanding has been very different. Because we have a choice. We've been given a choice, and he's allowed that. 
but he's also there to help us to come to him and to walk with him. But this thing is decided before we're born. It ignores that choice. Yes. Again, at the beginning of this section, we just started a few minutes ago. God has given us a means of change through Jesus, through Christ Jesus. Barclay has an interesting comment that this Calvinist thought makes God a monster, that he is citing before we even are given an opportunity to be alive, who will and who will not be saved. It's a scary God. It's a, a God was more like Satan, actually. And if I recall that God in Genesis looked upon what he made and everything was good. A lot of parallel verses in Hebrews 4. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. And though he sees everything, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but in all points was tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may attain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and gone astray, since he himself was also subject to weaknesses. I'm uh, looking at the time, and I'm thinking maybe this might be a, a good place to stop. So where on the uh, text online here it begins Christian's testimony, we will start that next week. I'm assuming we will finish it next week, this chapter on predestination. I know that, was it Ellis last week, was asking me if we will see more of Schuins making a distinction between the true Christian and the nominal Christian. He's doing it here, but not in such a precise way as you've seen in earlier chapters, but that will occur in future chapters. Again, he's talking about this doctrine of predestination, and I think later on here, he mentioned, he calls it a doctrine of devils, and that's really what it is. Okay. Well, thank you, everyone. This is, I think, a difficult chapter just because we are not often talking about this kind of thinking, but it, it's in the background for so many churches. So much so that there is sadly a belief among many, no matter what I do, I am eternally secure. I can do anything I want, and yet I am eternally secure. Yeah, that's once saved, always saved. And then... Uh, the challenge, I think, for the Calvinist was, if somebody were to go that way, the Calvinist would say, well, then that person never really, truly was meant to be saved. They had just taken it on for a while, but then walked away from it. It makes, as Barclay says, God a monster. You know, like I said, in the first hundreds of years of Christianity, no one in any writings that we're aware of ever said anything about this, ever looked at this. Thing as predestination being there, just it's not found. I mean, this is a later development of the long dark night of the apostasy, as early friends called uh, the gradual change of Christianity coming something very different from what it was originally. Okay, well, thank you, everyone. I'm going to stop the recording. This podcast has been a production of Ohio Yearly Meeting. It was hosted by Henry Jason and edited by Kim Palmer. The introduction and credits were read by Chip Thomas. The quote in our introduction is from Barclay's fifth and sixth propositions, as translated by Dean Friday in his 1967 version of Robert Barclay's Apology. We welcome feedback on this and any of our podcast episodes. Please email us at 
oymconservative at gmail.com.